0: All right, let's pray. Um, God, just uh, just want to be mindful that this is one of your books, that uh, we don't own anything in Scripture, but all truth you own. And so would you just speak to us? No matter what we bring here tonight, would you speak to us at the cusp of a new year, at, at the beginning of a new year, would you equip us through the teaching of your word, would you teach me as you teach through me on these truths that that set us free in you? And so I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would go to work interpreting and, and impressing upon the hearts of your children the book that you wrote, that you authored through James, that you minister to every heart here, because I certainly cannot do that. I'll be faithful to teach the text, but, but Holy Spirit, you take a speech and turn it into a sermon. And so um, we trust you excited for what you have in this, this series for us. Um, and just ask that you be glorified through all of this in Jesus name. Amen. So what we've titled this series is the law of Liberty. And, and you'll see that, that those two words alone already are a bit of a juxtaposition or at least seemingly a juxtaposition, aren't they? Like you rarely are talking about law brings liberty, And what a juxtaposition is, is it just simply means taking two ideas or two things and putting them side by side, and they generally contrast. And it does seem that James loves this idea of juxtaposing ideas. He talks about joy and trial, he talks about law and liberty, he talks about patience amid conflict. And James is an interesting guy. We know that he authored this book. We know that the Holy Spirit authored it, but James penned it. Does anyone know who James was? The James, there's, there's many James in the Bible, but who is this James? Uh, the half-brother. He's the half brother of Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that brother, Jesus had siblings? He can relate with you. Okay. You got siblings. He can relate with that craziness. Okay. And they called him James, the just, he was the half brother of Jesus. If you need the Bible verse to reference that, it's Matthew thirteen fifty-five. He was the brother of Jude. We see that in Jude one. And as he kicks off the letter, he says this, he says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know that some of you have siblings that told you that they were God, right? Or at least thought they were. You never believed him though, did you? You had an older brother, maybe an older sister. I can do no wrong. I had a younger brother. I had him convinced he was adopted for a while, right? Like, right? It's, it's tough to, to sometimes take things from your sibling, right? Interestingly enough, James, all the evidence that we have points to for the three years of Jesus performing his public ministry, James did not buy it. He didn't buy it. His brother was saying he was God, and James said, I don't buy it. You know, they probably had bunk beds. It's a little understandable. It's like, seriously, Jesus? He sat at the breakfast table with Jesus before work. He saw the the, the scuffles, the sibling craziness in a family. It's not not super surprising that when your brother says, actually, I'm God, your half-brother's like, okay. I don't know. And by all accounts, for three years, as Jesus is preaching and teaching, performing miracles, healing, James didn't buy it. James didn't buy it. We even see in Mark 3.21 that, that Jesus' half-brothers and his half-sisters at one point went to seize him while he's out preaching and teaching, they went to seize him. Why? Because they said, quote, he is out of his mind. Right? Siblings think other siblings are crazy, don't they? You need to know James, an author of the book of the Bible, the half brother of Jesus, didn't buy it at first. He wasn't down with it. He wasn't following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, saying this is the Son of God. He's finally here. He wasn't. He wasn't there. At least for those three years. But then something happened around Jesus' death, and James did a one eighty. What do you think that was? What flipped James? Because if there's, this is probably the best apologetic argument you can have is that his brother didn't believe him, and then all of a sudden he did. What happened? Holy Spirit. After his resurrection, Jesus resurrection. Here's this. This is, this is very simple to convince your siblings that you're God. Here's all you have to do. It's two things. Two things. You have to be publicly crucified. Die put into the ground and then three days later resurrect. That's it. It's all you have to do. It's all you have to do to convince your siblings that you're God. You have to be publicly, brutally destroyed on a cross, put into the ground, not just like resuscitated after 20 minutes because you don't know how to swim and you were out in El Nino. We're talking publicly, humiliatingly, destroyed on the cross, brutalized, put into a tomb, wrapped for three days. No one survives that. Even if he didn't die on the cross, no one survives three days in that condition. Jesus was Dead. Three days later, come out of the grave and have a fish sandwich with your brother. That's how you convince your siblings that you're God, And that's exactly what happened to James. He was say, I don't believe neither did his own half brother at times. And then Jesus raised from the dead. Now James says not, Hey, it's James. Uh, I'm the half brother of Jesus. You should listen to me. What does he say? I'm a bond And now Jesus is in a posture of worship before his half brother. He says a bond of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus put his faith in the resurrected Jesus. James put his faith in the resurrected Jesus and he never recanted unto his death. James was was an elder in the church, one of the the, the most influential elders of the church in Jerusalem. Christianity had just started. He was an elder at a church. Now worshiping, praising, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his half-brother. And if you need that, Acts 15, 13 shows us that James was a leader in the church. And James never recanted A mob approached him, told James, look, back off that claim, back off that claim that the son of God was here, that it was Jesus, that he died for the sins of all mankind, back off that claim, James. And James said, no. And the mob grabbed him and they took him up to the top of the temple and they pushed him off and he hit the ground and he didn't die. Church tradition tells us that James was praying for the mob as a member of the mob picked picked up a stick and crushed his skull. James, to his dying breath, was now a bondservant of Jesus. Had no belief during Jesus' public ministry. But when he came to know the resurrected king was now a bondservant, so James, now brother and now servant of Jesus is being used by the Holy Spirit to write this book. This is almost every scholar. You can always find some weird scholar from some weird universe that disagrees with everything that everyone says, but almost all scholarships, all scholars agree. This is the earliest New Testament manuscript that we have. It was written in the forties, not the 1940s, not the, not 1140, the forties, just forty. It was written in the forties, very close, very close after the stoning of Stephen, which was in Acts seven, I believe. They stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, right? They stoned him, they killed him. And it says that a great persecution. So we've got about conservatively, maybe 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem at the time. We get that number because on Pentecost there's 3,000 men were saved. And then a couple chapters later, about 5,000 men were saved, depending on how they counted families because one man tend to be actually about four based on a wife, one, two kids. It just depends. Let's say conservatively, there's about 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem. Stephen is martyred. And the Bible and church and history, secular history says that great persecution came on the church in that moment. And then Christians fled. Christians fled. And James says, a bond servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. That's what he's talking about. The church has now gone out under severe persecution and fled from Jerusalem. This book was written very shortly after the stoning of Stephen, the great persecution, and what was known as the dispersion of the church. And so James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter to be sent out to the Christians who are fleeing persecution, who are preaching the gospel wherever they go and planting churches in the Roman world. The earliest ancient church planting Christians And he's writing this letter as an encouragement to Christians who are living in an increasingly hostile society. Now, this is not Rome. Zach and I have told you time and time again, this is not Rome. We are not under the sort of persecution that they were under. We're not even under the sort of modern persecution that we see around the world. We are for the most part free from that. But would anyone argue that it's not getting worse? Is it or is it not? It's either getting worse or getting better for the church in America. Does anyone think it's getting better for the church right now? It's getting worse. Doesn't mean it's as bad as it was, by any means, but it is getting worse. We do not enjoy the sort of favor in this country that we did in its earlier part of its history. We will continue to see less favor in the future, but that doesn't mean that God isn't still building his church. Though society can tank and all societies will tank, Jesus can still build a kingdom amid the chaos. And so he's writing this letter as these churches go out and are now dispersed under increasing persecution. And he wants to encourage them in a lot of things as we're going to see in the next coming weeks. But some of the main things are, some of the main things are to realize their dependence upon God. Realize their dependence upon God. And to be weary of being lured into the things of the world. So he's going to constantly put us in this juxtaposition between the things of God and the things of this world. And so James was written to encourage Christians in an increasingly hostile environment to live lives dependent on God and to not give themselves over to the presumed comforts of the world. And he says this, he says, James, a bondservant of God to the end of the Lord, Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren. Now here he goes. Now he's going to start putting concepts together that to be honest, from a world's perspective, they should not be together. They shouldn't. My brethren count it all joy. When you fall into various, various trials, joy and trials don't go together. Do they, they're not supposed to from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, they absolutely always do. And and, and we taught through Philippians a little while ago, which is known as the epistle of joy. And we learned that we're not talking about happiness. Thank goodness. He didn't say my brother count it all happiness. When you fall into various trials, just be happy, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that fake Christianity. Like it's everything's fine. It's great. Sometimes life sucks. Trials are terrible. See, happiness is dependent on your circumstances. Joy is despite your circumstances. I likened it to a safety net that catches you when your circumstances are plummeting. It doesn't mean you're happy all the time, but it means that you have a joy. The Bible says you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so James launches into this, knowing that the church is facing increased persecution and says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And some of you are like, Well, what kind of trials are these? That's why he said various, right? Some of you are like, I don't know if my, my trial applies. That's the word various. Relationship trials, school trials, family trials, business trials, job trials, health trials, addiction trials. All of these trials, he says, are to be counted as joy. Now, how on earth can he say that? Because it will produce something, James says. It will produce this. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith, don't mistake in this, don't don't mistake in this, that, that trials produce faith. Trials don't produce faith. They test existing faith. They don't produce faith. Trials test existing faith. So James says, look, count it all joy when you fall into trials. And he says, because something's going to happen because of that. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, testing and patience. Those shouldn't be together. Patience should not be a part of trial. In trials, the world will have you believe that you should be anxious. That you should have doubt in the uncertainty, that you should fear the unknown. Anxiety, doubt, fear. James says, and look, some of you came here like, I want my New Year's sermon, right? Like 2016, here we tell me about the opportunity. Right? Tell me about how epic this year is going to be. Here's what I can promise you. All of us are coming out of, currently in, or headed into a trial. That's why it says, when you fall into trials. It's not if, it's when. That's the thing that holds us all in common. The Christian life is not one void of conflict It's one filled with the peace of Christ in conflict. And so while the world will then profess anxiety and doubt and fear, does God even exist if he's allowing this to happen? James says, find joy in this. Why? Because it produces patience. It's the opposite of what trials should cause by the world standard. James says there's something to be gained and says this, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the patience here in the Greek, I've got it written here. I don't know how to pronounce this. So I'm not even going to try. It's like humphom me or something like that. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active endurance. Some of you are in a trial right now, and I can't speak to every individual trial, and they're on so many different levels of earthly severity, I know. But you need to know that that, that resting in the joy of Christ amid your trials is an invitation to become more mature in your faith. Amidst trials. So we know not only that we're going to face trials. But this command, this crazy command is to count it all joy when you encounter. And so I want to take a look at, as we go through this next section, I want to take a look at how that's possible because the Bible shows us the outline. We're going to talk about four things, two ways that we view trials differently than the world. So two ways that Christians view trials or we should at least and then I want to talk about two different kinds of fights that you will encounter amidst those trials. And they will speak to every trial you're in. So two ways that we're to view trials and two fights that we will encounter that quite possibly some of you are currently encountering in your trials. Because it says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Nothing. and I I wrote this down that when you know you're headed into a fight and it's statistically proven, I was a martial arts instructor. It was one of my jobs in the Marine Corps. And one of the things is that if you are prepared to fight, if you are ready and you know, it's coming, you have an exponential greater chance of being victorious in it. Obviously, as opposed to being sucker punched to being ambushed. Why? Because you posture differently. Don't you? When you know a fight is coming, literally metaphorically, You know a fight is coming, you're postured for it, you're ready for it. And so James knows that they're going to be going into trials and they're going to be encountering a fight, and so he preps them to posture for them. He says, we've got to change your view on trials in two ways, and then we need to talk about two fights that you will encounter. And so to begin, the two ways that Christians view trials differently from the world Look back at verse three. It says this, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Christians view trials. Listen, Christians view trials. Christians should view trials as a pathway to maturity. We do this in every other area of our life, don't we? You do like think about it. Some of your your greatest moments, some of your greatest outcomes or victories have been through trials, right? Not through everything was great. I'm telling you, that's why in the military, in in sports, in theater, you don't reminisce on the times everything was beautiful, did you? Like, man, remember that one time everything just went as planned? Was that really when you were shaped and changed and motivated? No, it was when things were terrible. That's why boot camp exists. Just 13 weeks of misery. And then people get out. Right? <laughs> we were pretty epic. You were terrible. It was awful. And then you come out of there and be like, man, we accomplished something. We were changed through that. Think about that with sports, right? You do two weeks of, you do hell week before football, right? You talk, you talk more about hell week than you do your victories on the field, right? Theater folk, all that prep for a play. All, I, was, I was in band too. All that prep before a concert. No one's like telling us, we played it perfect at the concert. Like, cool story. No one cares. As to like, you remember that one time the whole trumpet section didn't show up? Right? We had to practice for eight hours in the band room as our little section or whatever. Those are the times you, and in business, right? It's not like, remember that one year where it was really great and everyone made all their, their numbers and it was terrific? And remember that one school year where our grades were easy and class was, wasn't that challenging? That's not when you were shaped. That's not when you were formed. But somehow we just say, well, with faith, it has to be different, right? Now I've got God on my side. If he can be for me, who can be against me? So now just sprinkle me with pixie dust and let's call it a day. Everything should be great, right? We think like trials aren't going to, what, be a part of our maturing, a part of our sharpening, a part of our building. So as Christians, we go into trials as tough as they are. I'm not belittling any trial you're going into. I'm not but to view it as the Bible calls us to view it is a path to maturity, knowing that it will produce something in us. And so Christians view trials differently from the world. We view it as a pathway to maturity. And I've got a quote here from A.W. Tozer. It's kind of long. Can you, can we like sit for like a few minutes and listen to a quote, right? We'll try. We'll, we'll really test our ability to listen I saw a pastor one time that for his first sermon at James, like he taught for like a half hour and then he read it for 15 minutes. Like you want to talk about testing people's patience in church. They were like, I could be doing Instagram right now. Right. But here it is. It says this from A.W. Tozer in regard to trials, he says the fallow, which just means unplanted. He's going to set a scene of a, of a field. Okay. So he says the fallow, which is an unplanted field. Okay. I've got uncles that are farmers. It means this. It hasn't been plowed. It hasn't had anything done to it. It's just, it's just an open plot of land. Okay. So the fallow field is smug, contented, and it's protected from the shock of the plow. And the agitation of the harrow, which means being churned up. Okay. So the field is smug, content, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. safe, And undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, a picture of sleepy contentment. We love that, don't we? We're like, let's do that. Like in Hawaii, right? Let's just lazily be content and sleepily happy on a field, right? With birds and sun. Sounds great, right? It says, but it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow. And the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, business-like, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised and broken, but its rewards come hard upon its labor. The seed shoots up into the daylight, and the miracle of life curious exploring the new world above it all over the field the hand of god is at work and in the age-old and ever renewed service of creation new things are born to grow mature and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground and if you remember nothing else from this i want you to think about this these words the rest of the week. I'm on a motorcycle all day. And this is what I'm, I know already it's going to be in my helmet the whole time. Nature's wonders follow the plow. Nature's wonders follow the plow. What he's saying is that growth, life, maturity follows the churning. And so As Christians, if we don't already, I would implore you, the Holy Spirit would implore you through James's letter to view trials as first and foremost a path to maturity. Number two, look at verse five. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Notice it doesn't say figure it out. Thank goodness. If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand if you lack wisdom. And if you're not raising your hand, it's because you lack wisdom. Okay? This is a 100% club. Welcome to it. All right? If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all. Everyone say all. Now, in the original language, it means what? It means all. Okay? There's your word study for the day. All. Liberally, which means almost too much. It gives you liberally. It means almost too much he'll give to you. And without reproach. And it will be given to him. The second way that we view trials as Christians, apart from what the world would have you believe, is that trials help us have an increased awareness of our dependence on God. Trials cause us to be very closely aware of the fact that we are not in control. I was re- when, I, when I do counseling and people, they come up and they say, I feel like I'm losing control. Zach and I always say, you're just realizing you never had it. Right? Because we think when everything's great, it's because we're in control. And then God does something that causes us to lose control. Trials help us become acutely aware of our need for God. When things are going great, let's be honest, we tend to not have our mind on the things of God. Am I the only one? I'm, maybe I'm the only one. I'm the only one. When things are going epic, you're like, I'm doing pretty great. And then things go crazy and you're like, why is God punishing me? Right? Who does it? don't, you don't have to raise your hand because you it's 100% club. Okay. Right? We, we, sort of, we sort of lose foot. We sort of figure that we're the ones causing everything to be great. And then when it goes sideways, we've done something wrong. So God is now punishing us. And so if any of you lacks wisdom, you feel like your life is out of control. You're in your trial. You don't have footing. You don't have ground. You view it as a, as a, as a path to maturity. And what God is doing is using that trial. He doesn't cause the trial necessarily. Okay. He's not punitively punishing you for your sin. That's a false gospel that says that he didn't fully punish Jesus on the cross for your sin. But as he's with you, with, among you, beside you through these trials, second way that we view it is that this is an opportunity to be made aware, aware of our need for God. And so this is our posture, because we're going to get into two fights now. So we view trials, first and foremost, James says, as an opportunity for maturity. Okay, an opportunity for maturity. And in that opportunity, we're going to have an increased awareness of our dependence upon God. It's not a self-help message. The gospel is not a self-help 12-step program to an empowered you. It's a depowered void of power, you and an all powerful God that you get to tap into. And so we've set our views. We've got, I pray at least those two lenses on as you come into or are part of any trial. And, but you're going to get hit with two fights. James is going to talk about two fights. And so we know that God's maturing us in trial. He's reminding us of our dependence upon him. And then God says, look, if you're confused, ask and I'll give you wisdom. But then he says this, look at verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. And we're like, that. okay, that's a bit of a harsh turn. You don't have to go so harsh so fast there, James, right? I was talking about like, he'll just give me liberally. Yay. Right. And then he cuts in with this, let him ask in faith with no doubting. It says he is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. And it's incredibly harsh because one of the fights that we do run into is doubt. Is it not doubt? Look, even the most, look, even the, I asked my dad of this, I asked my dad, this, at the time, I don't know how many years he was into pastoral ministry, 25, 30. He retired after 40 years as a pastor, 40 years in the pulpit, three different states. And I asked him in the car one time, I'm like, dad, do you doubt? And he looked at me, and goes, of course. Like, I just thought we were going to get into some big, like I used to. And then at different, he's like, of course. I was like, oh, he's like, of course I doubt. Still though? Yep. Call him right now. I could text him, dad, do you doubt? Yeah, at times. But then we weren't supposed to, we're supposed to doubt. And whenever you think about doubt, I would go to Mark nine. You don't have to go there. I'll read it starting in verse 20. It says, and they brought the boy to him. That's Jesus. They brought a boy to Jesus. And when Jesus, and when he saw him immediately, the spirit convulsed and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. The boy was demon possessed. And so Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And often he, I can't even imagine this. I just have, I've got a one week old and I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And he said, and often he, that means the spirit has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I can't imagine showing up and seeing my six-year-old being thrown into a fire the boy likely very likely is burned on the majority of his body. This demon has attempted to drown him. This father probably couldn't go to work at times. He would race home from work because mom was dragging their boy out of the lake or drying him off or putting out the fire that he had just been tossed into. And then the father said, but if you to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Check this out. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Which one is it? It's both. Doubt is not the absence of belief. It is a worldly repercussion of it. In a world that is broken and fractured, it will beat you down. If there are any of you that come here tonight feeling ashamed that you've doubted, know that Jesus is not at all thrown off by that. You say, I believe. And can't we all identify with that? I believe, but help my unbelief, right? Right? And the world would say, well, you either believe or you don't. Nonsense. I believe, but I still have unbelief. And trials exacerbate that. Do they not? You're going to be challenged this year in trials. You're going to doubt that God is good. And James is going to address that. You're going to doubt that things are from him. And James is going to address that. You're going to doubt things, but that doesn't mean that you don't still believe. Don't fall into that lie. That doubt is the absence of belief. The father cries out. He says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. We believe, but part of us doesn't. Now the question is, is that enough faith to set God into motion on your behalf? Is it? Or do you have to be, I believe 100%, no doubt, game on. I'm going to church every day this week. This is my year. I'm going to read the whole Bible. <laughs> Who said that last eight years in a row, right? Who's doing it this year? Raise your hand. Come on. And people, people are like, nope, I'm going to fail. I'm not I'm trying. Right? is saying, I believe, but I have doubt. Is that enough faith to set God into motion on your behalf? Check this out. The story continues. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed the boy greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead. That's the boy. The boy fell on the ground. So that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. In the midst of your trial, when you come up against that fight of doubt, the words you remember, the words of that dad said, look, I believe, but Jesus, help my unbelief. And that's enough faith for God to be set into motion. God honors that fight that he knows you'll have in a broken world. Doubt is not the absence of belief. There will come a day when trials will hit you. You'll struggle with doubt to some degree. And I pray, as a body of believers, we pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And so the first one is doubt. Take a look at verse nine. It says, this is going to be the second fight. I'll summarize it. It's, it's, it's beautiful language. It says this, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat Then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuit. This is talking about it, actually, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so those first verses, 9 through 11, it's talking about Instagram. Some people have not been paying attention to the whole sermon, and they're just not paying attention. <laughs> what? It's talking about the life lived in comparison of others. I got an Instagram. Love Instagram. I get paid to do Instagram, by the way. I'm an online marketer. Do you know? Uh, I think it was so. It's almost a year ago. It was last February. Came out with the first social science study, basically on the effects of Instagram. Guess what it causes? Happiness, <coughs> fulfillment, drive, energy, empowerment. What does it do? What do you think it creates? depression. It's not the technology. Don't go all crazy Pharisee, but I can't use Instagram. It's not of the world. It's not in the Bible, right? So I can't use it. Yeah. Well, you drove in here in a car and those weren't in the Bible either. Okay. It's not the technology. It's what our heart does when we consume the technology. And look, you could pull up my Instagram right now. You know what you're going to see? The highlights of my life. You're gonna see my little baby girl. With that, I'm sorry. If you follow me on Instagram, that was the explosion of cuteness this week in your newsfeed. You're welcome. Okay. You're gonna see motorcycle pictures. Some people, you think I rode like I'm doing photo shoots on like Tuesday. I'm at the office, by the way. I only shoot like once a month, and then I just take four weeks to post all the pictures. Right? People are like, do you even work? You're just riding. <laughs> all you're seeing is the highlights. You're like foot golf, motorcycle, baby girl. You got it epic. You don't see the hard times. I didn't Instagram when we lost our baby. I didn't Instagram the second time we lost a baby. I don't Instagram when I'm lonely. I don't Instagram when I'm frustrated, when I'm in a trial, when I doubt. There's no selfie for doubting your faith in Jesus. Now's a good time for a selfie. Hashtag doubt Jesus. All you're seeing is the highlight reel of people's lives. And what he gets to here is comparison. Comparison. And, and look, ladies, this is a special struggle for you. The Village Church in Texas, huge mega church, right? They did a study because Pastor Matt Chandler wanted to, because no, no surprise, guys don't understand women. And so he wanted to understand women a little bit more. And so he, he set the women's ministry to do this massive study to figure out what they struggled with the most. The number one thing. Maybe it's just them. Maybe all women here, you guys are just so secure. You don't compare yourself at all to other women. But in this study, that was the number one thing that women struggled with was comparison. I've joked, you don't even have to watch guys watch girls at the gym anymore. You watch girls watch other girls at the gym now, at the mall, at school. Why? Because you ladies are, you're you're comparing. Guys do this too. We do cars and career. And we all compare, but I know that this is especially in talking with my wife, this is especially a struggle for women in America these days and men. And that's just Instagram. Cause you, you come off a rough night and you hop into bed with your iPhone or your iPad and you start scrolling through someone's highlight reel, man, they have it epic. They just do whatever they want. And everything looks epic on Instagram, doesn't it? Their marriage is great. They've got kids, they have money. There's burning money they have so much. They get new cars whenever they want, just new toys on new clothes. You don't see the darkness. You don't see the desperation. We don't see the trials. We don't Instagram those. And he says, look, for all Christians, non-Christians, there will be days where the sky is dark. There will be days where it's great. By the grace of God, there will be some epic days. Having my baby girl was an epic day but it doesn't mean that trials aren't coming. And this comparison kills. It's the highlight reel and it produces comparison and comparison kills. And it makes us hyper aware our trials. You need to know this. And you, some of you experience this, your trials make you hyper aware of how awesome everything else is for everyone else. You notice that when you're in a trial, isn't it just everyone is having an epic day except you? It's not true, but that's what trial does to our heart. And that breeds resentment. And you start to hate those people. You're absurd. You just, you've just been given everything. And you had, so you grew up in the church. You're just nonsense. And you're, you don't know what it's like. I'm from here. You don't know what it's like to be from there. And we start to resent people just as we're scrolling through Instagram. And so whether it's comparison, which kills or resentment, which ridicules. One of the fights you're going to come into in a trial is comparing your life to others in that trial. And you'll be hyper aware of the awesomeness of everyone else and it's just not true. But the Holy Spirit through James is saying, don't be fooled by this. Don't be fooled. Everyone has trials. Look at verse 13. It says, let no one... Say, See, James knows that encouragement is needed. Some of you are like, this is the heaviest New Year's. Like, I thought we were going to get like a cheer, like sermon. Like, I am not excited about 2016 anymore. Let's go back to 2015. Here's where the encouragement comes in. He says this, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And conversely, the Bible says, whenever you are tempted, which is not by him, he will always give you an out. Always. Not everything is caused by God, but everything is allowed by God. It's not fatalism where God causes everything to happen. It's sovereignty where he allows everything to happen. And so you fall into trials. We get tempted, not of God, but God does say he will provide the out in that temptation. He will provide the out. From the wickedness that our heart draws up in these, in these times of trials. I know that. I know what it's like to walk out of a, of a job and having absolutely nothing in the pocket. Walking out of a job and not knowing how I'm going to provide for my family. And starting that trial. I know what it's like to want to resent people. We all do. I know what it's like to want a bigger house. So my kids can have an actual backyard like I had growing up in the Midwest. And can't find one out here for less than $3 billion. Right? I know what it's like to start resenting as people start getting bigger houses and we've still got our cool little condo. I know what that's like. It's tempting. It's not God tempting me. And he provides an out. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We're always looking for the stuff that we're responsible for in the Bible, aren't we? Like, tell me what I'm responsible. This is what we're responsible for. Enticing ourselves with our own desires. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin. When it is fully grown brings forth death. And some of you are like, you said this was the encouragement paragraph (laughs) just ended with death. There's two views of law. There's two views of law. One is that the law keeps you from things. The other view is that law leads you into things. Liberty is not the absence of law. Liberty is freedom within the confines of it. No law is called anarchy. And that goes upside down super fast. See, we we think law and liberty don't belong next to each other. And God says, my ways don't keep you from things. They lead you into better things. I'm providing you a path to maturity in your trial and you're using it for resentment and comparison. And so listen to this. When trials come, we're being, we're being given a path to maturity We're going to realize our need for God. We're going to go into a fight with doubt in our faith. We're going to fight with comparison and resentment. If we're not careful, we will be tempted and drawn by our own desires away from God's invitation to become more mature in our faith and to get what we actually need, which is him. And so here, what James is going to do is he's going to turn our eyes on the character of God. He's going to turn his eyes our eyes on the character of God. And it says this Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't fall into it. I'm not keeping you from something, I'm leading you into something better. Don't be deceived. My beloved brethren, every good gift, everyone say every, every. In the original language, it means every good gift. And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Do not be conceived. This is where he says, look, God is pouring out gifts on you and we're refusing to see them. I kid you not. I I had no illustration for this until about 15 minutes before I came here tonight. No illustration. I've got a six year old who just happened to get his first like pimple or something (laughs) right here. And he's been a little sick. So he had like a little bit of a, like an inflamed, you know, nose from all the rubbing and blowing. And so, so he's got kind of like these two little sores. Okay. Today was awesome. I had an awesome Saturday. I ate or Sunday. Got a newborn. You have to. <laughs> I had donuts this morning. I never have donuts. I woke up and I was like, "Boys, we're getting donuts." They were like in their jammies. They just put on their shoes. They're like, "Let's get out." He's serious. He never eats donuts, right? And then we just went. Asher in his little penguin jammies, right? Like just super skinny, right? Just belly. We're tromping into the donut shop. That's an epic morning, right? We came back. What did we do? We ate those donuts. We had coffee, right? We had Maisie who was awake, right? I let the boys watch a movie, right? They had a movie this morning. They played with all their toys still from Christmas. They're playing, all this sort of stuff. Ethan comes, like, just day, just thing after thing after thing. Like, they're reading, they're playing, they're watching movies, Maisie, Donuts, just everything. Emily Wall came over. Like, it's just great. And then Ethan's like, he comes onto the couch, no joke, as I'm, I'm, I'm like, just closing up my iPad, getting ready. And he's like, Mommy, today was a bad day. My, I'm, like, I'm just sitting there listening. I'm like, here comes an illustration. Yes. And she's like, Ethan... You might be having a bad moment right now with your little sore. She's like, "But what did you? What was the first thing you did this morning? We had donuts. Was that good or bad? That was good. What did you do after that? A snuggle with Maisie. Was that good or bad? That was good. What did you do after that? Dad loves watching movie. Is that good or bad? That was good. She just started taking him through all this sort of stuff. There's a theological doctrine known as common grace. Common grace is what can be experienced by all people, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian. When you wake up and you take a breath, or you've been breathing, which is common grace, even though you've been sleeping. Anyone had to keep tabs on your heart recently? Did you have to keep telling it to beat? The Bible says every breath you take is evidence of common grace. It's something you get, though you don't deserve it. And it can be experienced by all, even if you're not a Christian. That's saving grace. Common grace. You woke up, you took a breath. How many of you have been sick? Like disastrously like sick, like can't get out of bed sick, right? At some point. So if today you got out of bed and you're like, I feel all right, that's, that's common grace. Health is a sign of common grace, is it not? Did you eat today? In America, we have casual meals that are set aside as feasts in most countries. Feasts for royalty for holidays, that's it. Other than that, it's chicken and beans all year round. I was embedded with an Iraqi brigade. I ate with those guys for months. They eat the exact same yellow chicken and uh, beans and then a tortilla every day, every meal. People would be like, what's taking so long? Where's my food? It's been 10 minutes, right? Common Food, the Bible says, is a sign of common grace. Now we don't have much of it, but have you seen it rain recently? Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. Have you got anyone gone to a, a movie recently? The arts theater. Bible says that's a sign of God's common grace to be experienced by all. We just had a baby. My wife does C-sections. We go in. We know exactly when we're going to have our kid. We know the day we're going to have our kid. He goes in. He's like, we're ready. We're ready. Bam. He goes to work seven minutes. Baby's out. Just goes to town. These medical advancements, sign of God's common grace. All I'm saying is this. We see God's gifts everywhere. Family, food, friendship, entertainment, job, money, rain, seasons, sun, warmth, all of that all the time. If it's good, God gave it to us. And just like Ethan, he, he blew right past all the good to focus on the bad. And our heart wants to do the exact same thing in trial. Blow right by all the good. Focus on the bad. Scroll through Instagram and say it's even worse than I thought. And God says, I've given you so much. And so God pours out. His gifts on his kids. And I, and I have this note. I don't know if it's too much of a rabbit trail, but I have to. You need to know that amidst trials, I can't, I'm going to preach this till I'm blue in the face. You need to know that God is not punishing you. God chastens those he loves. That means he disciplines them. He prepares them for future things. But we must, we must get over the false doctrine that God punishes you for your sin. Why? Because then that says that he didn't punish Jesus as your sin. If Jesus truly absorbed all your sin on the cross, God's punishment for your sin is complete. God is not punishing you for your sin and we've all done it. We've all thought this is going wrong. What did I do? What do I need to do to undo why God is mad at me? We all have. Trials exist. We live in a broken, fractured world. God allows things, but it doesn't mean He causes things. God is not punishing you, friends. He is not punishing you. He already punished Jesus as your sin. His wrath has been satisfied. Now He calls us through trials to a greater sense of maturity. He calls us to a greater sense of dependence upon him, knowing that we're going to come across these fights. We're going to begin to struggle with doubt. We're going to begin to compare our lives in the midst of trials. And he says, remember that I'm pouring out all good gifts on you. Even when we don't see him, And James's epic conclusion to this whole thing, this whole concept of trials is this in verse 18. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. I'm here to simply say this, God chose you. You. God chose you. Look, I love community. Most of the time, I'm going to tell you to stop thinking about you. But right now, I want to personalize it. I want you to know that God looked out over the expanse of all of human history and said, I'm going to make her my daughter. I'm going to make him my son. Adopted into my family for my glory. It says of his own will. It doesn't get any more secure than that. And the question isn't why does he choose some and not others? The question is why does he choose anyone? Leave that debate for some people that live to debate. Why does he choose some and not others? He chose you. That's amazing. He chose you of his own free will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be, and this is going to launch us into the rest of the book, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's going to be a call on your life in this study. There's going to be a call on your life in this study. You're going to be, you're going to have concepts put up next, especially next week. We all know what next week is faith and works. Faith and works. And that seems weird, but so does law and liberty. Those seem to be opposite, yet they're not. They work cohesively. And we're coming up on faith and works, and you're going to be pressed on this call on your life. It's not sitting back in 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 a passive posture. It's an active endurance in the trials. And he says that we might be the first fruits of his creatures. Now, what does that begin to sound like? I'm simply going to read it. I'm going to let God's word exhort us on what that sounds like. It sounds like, so then my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Swift to hear, Christian. Slow to speak. I'm convicted on that. Slow to speak, Christian. Slow to wrath. I'm convicted on that. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, all filthiness, and overflow of wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It says this, but be doers of the word. Be doers of the word. People are like, I I wish I knew what it looked like to live as a Christian. If only God wrote a book about it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Look, Jesus isn't looking for an audience, he's looking for disciples. It was one thing to hear a teacher, it was another to follow him. Are you simply here to hear a sermon or are you being equipped to live a sermon? My job is not to just preach good sermons, it's to equip the saints. Your job is to come here, not to just hear a sermon, but be too equipped to be equipped as a saint. Are you ready for that call? Are you ready for that path to maturity? Are you here to hear a sermon or are you going to be equipped to live one? James is going to put you in that tension. James lived in tension. Didn't believe Jesus was God until he died and resurrected. James knows tension. Tension. That's why he says joy and trial. That's why he says faith and works. That's why he says law and liberty. And so be doers of the word, not hearers only. And it says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And we treat the Bible the same way. It's a good sermon. I like that chapter. Cool. And then we're going to go into six days not living it. How many of us are going to go back and and take a look at verse 19 and and go back over and really meditate and ask Jesus to help you be slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to wrath this week at your job, at your school, with your siblings, with your parents. You're here to hear a sermon. You want to be equipped to live one. It says, for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. In the midst of trials, God is leading you into a path of maturity. He's giving you an opportunity to realize your dependence upon him. He's gonna come alongside you as you fight with comparison, as you fight with resentment and doubt but you need to know that he is faithful to secure them, those whom he chose. He chose you. People say, how do I know if I'm chosen? If you love Jesus, you're chosen. But I didn't love Jesus and now I do. You're chosen. I don't love Jesus, not the way that he wants me to. If you turn to him, you are chosen. Not because of anything that we've done but because of what he's done. Amen? Let's pray. God, that we just, as we come to the conclusion of this first chapter, I pray that we're encouraged in what you do through us, not in anything that we do, because when trials come, we run to the deceit of our heart. And I pray specifically for those who are, are in a trial right now, knowing that we're either coming out of one or headed one into one as well, but specifically for those who are here that are in a trial of varying degrees. Jesus, that they would see that you are inviting us to be fruitful in that trial so that a broken world would see something different about the people that say they follow you. Holy Spirit, help us fight. Comparison Help us fight resentment. We believe, but help our unbelief. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you chose us and you knew exactly who you were purchasing on the cross. And so we go into this time of worship to bring you honor and glory for your namesake. Amen. And I mean it when I say Jesus knew who he was purchasing. Regardless of what you may think about yourself, Jesus thinks you're worth it. And so we have communion, which is nothing magical, but it is symbolic. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me and the price that he paid to purchase you. And so we take the bread first as a sign of his body, which was broken as your sin, And we drank the juice, which is a symbol of his blood, which was poured out over all your sin, past, present, and future. Let's worship.